Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, let me jump right into it. So today I'm beginning a brand new series on the family, and I'm calling it the Family Circus. How many remember the comic strip? Started in 1960, the Family Circus, with Bill Keen. He was an artist. Here it is, picture of it. It was actually originally called the Family Circle because all the captions all took place in a circle, but there was a magazine by the same name, and they sued him, and he had to change it, and it became the Family Circus. And there's one distinction about this comic strip that I think is really important. It's been going on now for over 60 years. Little Jeffy, uh, who was in the cartoon, because Bill Keen's actually dead, so Jeff Keen has carried it on. And in 60-some years of Family Circus, it's got the distinction of never being funny. Not not even once. Growing up as a kid, I used to look at that and think, that's not funny. Maybe I'll understand it when I'm older. I looked at it when I'm older and I said, it's still not funny. I'm not the only one who noticed it's not funny. You know that. Mad Magazine used to make fun of it because Mad Magazine actually was funny. And uh, they would take, they had their own version of it. I'm going to show you one. Want to see one? Here, Here it is. So, you made this card all by yourself? It sucks. (laughs) That's super funny. And it's good parenting, too. So, I love the name. Check the name. Bill Spleen, not Bill Bill Keene. And then there's another one, even more inappropriate. They really didn't think it was funny. So they took the actual Family Circus cartoons and they put different captions on them. It was called the Dysfunctional Family Circus. I I, I could only find one that I could even show in church. And and here it is. Uh, So dad's putting something down the garburetor. Little Jeffy runs up. False alarm, dad. It wasn't the cops. Just the mailman. (laughs) This is good stuff, right? Why didn't Bill Keene think of these? Well, he just wasn't funny. Uh, He had other good things, but not that. And here's the thing about the family. The family is kind of a circus, right? It's loud, it's chaotic, it's unpredictable, and it's always entertaining. How many of you grew up in Winnipeg going to the Shrine Circus? Anybody? Shrine Circus people? I loved the Shrine Circus. My grandmother took us every year. I loved it. I mean, there was nothing on TV in the 60s and the 70s. There was nothing really. You were never going to see elephants, live elephants anywhere. You could go to the Shrine Circus. You could see some guy put his head in the mouth of a lion. It doesn't get any better than that. But the greatest show on earth was what? Greatest show on earth? Come on. Barnum and Bailey, right? Of course. Actually, you know, here's the story behind this, because somebody said Ringling Brothers. It's actually all of the above. The five Ringling Brothers, P.T. Barnum and James Bailey, all brought their circuses together in one giant circus, which became known as the greatest show on earth. And it really was extraordinary. The things they pioneered and, and, and how they presented, and the fact that they had 40 elephants in their show, all trained to do things, and wild animals all kinds of different things, was incredible. And then in 1871, they introduced something, they pioneered something, the three-ring circus. And the three-ring circus, here's a picture of it way back in the day, it was three rings all having shows going simultaneously in all three rings. And then, of course, it was quite a job to keep these all going at once. But what it did was it created no dead airspace. So people would sit literally on the edge of their seat. And if they looked away for a moment, they would miss something. So it all went on like this. And it was incredible. Well, after 146 years, 
of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. It got shut down in 2017. Some of you probably don't know this story. You know why? The animal rights activists shut it down because they didn't think the wild animals, uh, tigers and lions and, and, and even horses and monkeys and, and especially elephants, should be in captivity. So in 2017, the greatest show on earth came to an end. But here's the good news. As long as the family exists, there will be wild animals in captivity, right? <laughs> and, and, the, and the three ring circus will go on forever. And so what I'm going to do in this series is I'm going to do three messages, and I'm going to do the three-ring circus of the family. Now, you all know my three rings of marriage. I've told you this many times. The three rings of marriage are the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. (laughs) Never gets old for me. So thank you for indulging. But when we look at the family, there is actually three rings of the family, and of course the family is far more complex than this. But we have three things that are going on simultaneously, and we have to balance all of these things. And here's what they are. They're they're relationship, responsibility, and recreation. And you can't, can't ignore one of these things. You have to have recreation, and you have to have responsibility, and you have to have relationship, and you have to hold them all in balance, and they have to all function together in a kind of a balance and simultaneously. And there's a key player in all of this. See, let let me ask you a question. If the family is a circus, who are you? Some of you say, the clown, the monkey. Well, that's probably true. Let me tell you, you're supposed to be the ringmaster. It's not your five-year-old son. It's not your 13-year-old daughter, certainly. You are supposed to be the ringmaster. That is your role. It's your job to be the master of ceremonies, the artistic director. It's your job to keep everything in balance and keep these three rings all running at the same time and to relate with your circus to the audience. And of course, I'm talking about your family and the world around your family. And you are the one that has to make sure that there is this connection between them. So that's the picture I want to paint of the family over the next few weeks. But we're going to start with a verse. We're going to go to the very last book in the Old Testament. It's the only Italian prophet, Malachi. You've all heard of him. <laughs> you know, people get so mad when I say that. I say, Pastor Mark, it's not pronounced Malachi. It's Malachi, to which I say, how do you know how it's pronounced? Do you speak classical Hebrew? <laughs> I mean, who knows how it's actually pronounced? Anyway, I'm going with Malachi. And so we have him because he, he, he loves the family. He's got this thing. And I'm going to read you the last thing that God said in the entire Old Testament. Because the last thing someone says, I think, is sometimes pretty important. So here's what he says. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What do you think about this? Out of all the things God could have said last in the Old Testament, before 400 years of prophetic silence until John the Baptist came along, he could have talked about the Messiah. He could have talked about a number of different things. But he said, instead, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the father. He says, because if I don't, if this does not happen, the earth will be under a curse. And when I look at the family today, I shudder at the direction we have gone on a bunch of levels, and I look at the mess that the world is in, and I see it as a consequence. I don't know about you. And maybe we can't change the world, 
But you know what you can change? You can change your family. And so what we're going to do in this message today is I just got two points. not going to attempt three. And uh, there's, again, the family's far more complex than this. But I want to take relationship, which is a very vast topic in itself. And I'm going to give you two things that I think will be really helpful for us to build a strong and meaningful family. And here's what they are. Number one, they are commitment. And number two, they are communication. So we want to talk about this thing called commitment. Commitment can mean, again, a lot of things. It could mean, you know, uh, unconditional love. It could be faithfulness. It could be forgiveness. It could be a whole lot of things. But I have a version of commitment that I'm going to drill in on today, and I'm going to use the circus metaphor for it. So I don't know about you. How many like the acrobats, the trapeze people? How many like that? In the, that for me, that's, that, for my money, it's the trapeze. The high, high wire act and the trapeze. And I love the elephants and I love the monkeys and I love all the clowns. But the trapeze artists are really phenomenal. And what they do up in the air where they fly off this swing and do multiple flips and then grab hold of somebody else. You've seen the pictures. Show the picture. I mean, it's just extraordinary beauty. It's extraordinary grace. It looks impossible. And here's what I find interesting. They make it look so easy, don't they? Remember the old song, He Flies Through the Air with the Greatest of Ease? The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. Some of you remember that song? It just looks so easy. But I'll tell you what, it's not with the greatest of ease. If you were to try it, let's say I dared you. I say, well, we'll set up a trapeze here. And, I just, and you're a novice, so only do one flip. And, and I'll catch you. What would happen? You would die. You would die. I'm telling you, I'm not catching you. I'm going to miss. You're going to fall to your death. And it'll be your fault for trying. And, here, and not, not mine. I tried to catch you. I did my best. And here, here's, here's the thing. How did they get so good at it? <laughs> practice, practice. They put in the time. And here's one thing we know about life. You cannot get good at anything without putting in the time. Am I right? You cannot get good at anything. You have to practice. You want to play the piano, you want to play golf. It doesn't matter what you want to do. You have to put in the time. And when you get really good at something, they, it makes it look so easy, right? I mean, when you watch Connor McDavid play hockey, how many of you think he makes it look easy? I mean, he smacks the puck on the ground, gets it, hooks it into his stick, and throws it into the net. I think that doesn't look very hard. It's hard. He just makes it look easy. You watch Lionel Messi play soccer, and he just goes through the whole team and scores. He makes it look so easy. You see LeBron James drive the net. He makes it look so easy. You know how they got there? Say it again. Practice. They put in the time. And not a little bit of time. A lot of bit of time. It goes back to Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, where he talks about the 10,000-hour rule. Have you heard of this? And he says, if you're ever going to get good, really good at something, you need to put in at least 10,000 hours. So I want you to think about this in in terms of of family. If you're going to get good at it in family, if you're going to become a good parent, you're going to have to put in the time. There's no quick way to do it. You just have to put in the time. So I'm going to show you a little graph. These are some numbers. They're not quite as current as I'd like, but they're pretty good. And we're going to go back to it later, and we're going to talk about how it's changed over time. But I want you to look at the last one. They're saying that the average father puts in about seven hours a week with their children, the average mother about 14 hours. And we're talking about meaningful time. We're not talking about sleeping in the same house. We're talking about the time that they actually put in. 
So let's, uh, so women are obviously doing a little bit better than the fathers, but let's talk about the fathers for a moment as an example. So if, for example, we are putting in seven hours a week with our kids and we need 10,000 hours to become really, really good, do the math, how long will that take? I'll do the math for you. 30 years. I got news for you. If that's how long it takes us to get there, your kids are long gone before you're finally good at parenting. And if they still are at home after 30 years, you've got a whole different other problem, right? <laughs> that you've got to deal with. And so, so when, we, when we look at this, we think this, this is an extraordinary amount of work to become a good parent. And everybody in here knows this. Those of you that have been through this journey, and as soon as you start figuring out a certain age group, your kids move into the next age group, and everything you learn down here no longer applies to your teenager. You all know what I'm talking about. And so if you're going to be a great parent, you're going to have to put in the time. So here's, here's what I want to talk about as sort of my illustration from Scripture. I'm going to pick on King David today. You know what? We love to talk about King David and slaying Goliath and beating the Philistines and bringing back the ark, and all those things are true. And if you were to describe David, according to the Scripture, the Scripture says he was a man... He was a man after God's own heart. It's in, it's in Acts 13, 22. And so we, I think that's a fair description of David, that he was a man after God's own heart. But let me tell you what he wasn't. He wasn't a man after his children's heart. And this is where I want to pick on David. He was a great leader, great king, a great man of God. He was a terrible parent. And you go read the stories, you go read through the whole narrative of David's life, and you will come to the realization that he was actually one of the worst fathers ever in Scripture. Let me give you a little bit of the the story here that you may or may not know. That David had, count them, eight named wives. Eight wives. Not two, not four. He had eight. He had 19 named children. Now, we don't know how many concubines that he had. We don't actually know how many children he had. I mean, you've got eight wives and a few concubines on the side. He might have had 30 or 40 children. My question for you is this. How much time was he spending with those 30 or 40 kids, or even if it was only 19? And we read the story, and the answer is, not very much. I mean, he was really busy. He was killing giants, and he was defeating the Philistines, and he was building a city, and he was establishing a palace, and he was committing adultery. He was very, very busy. (laughs) He didn't have time for all these snotty-nosed kids. His wives were taking care of them. I mean, imagine if you had 19 or 20 or 30 kids. Would you even know all their names? You know that my mother never once called me by my right name. As growing up with four brothers, it was always, she, this is what she called us. She called us Brad, Mark, Todd, Kelly. Brad, Mark, Todd, Kelly. She'd say, hey, hey you, Brad, Mark, Todd, Kelly. And I, that's how I thought my name was, Brad, Todd, Mark, Kelly. And, uh, you know, she just would go through the list. And to this day, I've come to the realization, I'm not sure my mother knows which one I actually am. I mean, it's just a guess, but, but, but anyway, so, so we, have, we have David with all these kids. And here's what we know about his story, the, the most egregious of them all, was the fact that one of his sons actually committed a rebellion against his father and tried to take the kingdom from him, and they ended up in pitched battle against one another. I don't know what's going on in your family. This is serious stuff. But let me give you the backstory because the backstory is kind of fascinating. So, so paint the picture for you. You've got, you've got eight wives. You've got at least 19 children. And each one of those wives 
that you've kind of got mini families because you've got families within each one where they are first brothers and sisters and then they are half brothers and sisters to the other ones from the other mothers. You get that. Their father was David, but they all have different mothers, a bunch of groups. So just keep that in mind as we go through this story. So David's eldest son's name was Amnon. Amnon, are you ready for this? Raped his half-sister Tamar. That's a pretty egregious thing to happen within a family. And then Tamar's full brother, not half-brother, was Absalom. And what had happened was, what did, does anyone know what David did about that rape? About that thing that happened in the family? Nothing. He did nothing about it. And this enraged Absalom, who was the full brother of Tamar, and he thought, if my dad is not going to deal with it, I'm going to take matters in my own hand. And who remembers what he did to Amnon? Yeah, he killed him. He had him killed. And so, yeah, I don't know what's going on in your family, but I'm pretty sure it's not this bad. And so then after Absalom had Amnon killed, he knew his dad wasn't going to be happy about that one. So he fled and he was gone for three years. And during that time of exile, he was planning the coup d'etat. And he was planning on coming back and taking over the kingdom from his father. He was mad at his father. He had assumed that his father had gone off the rails. He had a motive in all of this. So finally he comes back after three years and David, because he was a man after God's own heart, forgave him, which he did not expect, but his father forgave him. But see, that didn't stop him. He had already been planning this and he carried on through with it and he actually started the rebellion and he took you know, a certain percentage of David's men and so half of, half of the men were with Absalom and half of the men were with David and this time David had to flee from Jerusalem. And he was literally in a military battle with his son. And they were fighting, and their men were fighting, and they were killing each other. And the ending of this story is nothing short of tragic. Now, here's what we know about Absalom. The Bible says he was the most handsome man who ever lived. And not only that, but he had beautiful long hair. So imagine this, just so you can get this. He looked like Brad Pitt but he had hair like Fabio. And he had this beautiful, luxurious, panting hair that flowed in the wind. And I could see, I could see him walking by and flicking his hair behind his shoulders. He was just so pretty, even the men thought he was stunning. And so everybody wanted to follow him. They're going, I'm going with that dude because he's got great hair and he's awesome looking. And so, so half of them followed him and he's in battle. Of course, his hair was what got him in trouble. And some of you remember the stories. So he's going into battle and he's riding his horse. His hair was flowing in the wind. It probably looked fabulous. And his hair is flowing in the wind. He went through a hick, hick thicket. And I'm sorry I'm going to laugh when I tell this story. It's very tragic, but I still find it very funny. He's going through the thicket and his hair gets caught in the, in the thicket. And he comes off his horse and he's dangling by his hair. That's funny. The next part, not so funny. Joab, one of David's men, comes with a spear and drives him through and kills the man. So then we find David. And David is inconsolable. And he's crying and he's wailing. And he's going, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. You know what that tells me? He loved his son. But he did such a crummy job of parenting him. You know what, David? No offense. Too little. Too late. And see, what happens is just because we love our kids, it's not enough if you don't put in the time. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's a second moral of this story, if you want to hear it, and it's this. 
It doesn't matter how beautiful you are, everybody has a bad hair day once in a while. <laughs> the other day I was fussing with my hair and I said to Kathy, I said, I think I'm having a bad hair day. She said, oh, don't worry about it. You have a bad hair day every day. <laughs> so I want to go back to this graph because I know I told a tragic story. I don't care how bad your family is, it's not as bad as David's, am I right? Nobody's got a family this bad. But I want to show you this graph again about these hours because it's really fascinating if you look to 1975 to 2010, you look at a generation, and uh, there's some good news because parents are spending more time with their kids than they used to. And it's also fascinating to me because a generation ago, the families were twice as big. The parents had twice as many kids or three times as many kids, and yet today they're spending twice or three times as much time with less kids. So that tells you that some of you that are part of my generation, we got short shift in the whole parenting thing. So I want to just talk about that for a moment. See, you know, I grew up in, in, in a family where my dad had a different ethic, and it was part of the culture. And their job was to bring home the bacon. That was their job, to work hard and to be responsible and make money. And the, the, my mother's job was to raise the children. And, and it was sort of fascinating growing up because my dad just didn't spend a lot of time with us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love my dad. He was a wonderful person. He was loyal. He was smart. He was honest. He was super generous. He had a lot of good qualities. But spending time with his kids sort of wasn't one of them. On Sunday morning, here's what would happen. My mother would wake us all up. We'd all go off to church. My dad would sleep in. That was his one day to sleep in. And then when he finally did get up about noon, he went to the office all day Sunday afternoon. And he would show up for Sunday dinner. He always came home for Sunday dinner. But he worked every Sunday afternoon. He went back to the office. And I used to say to him, why do you have to... He worked for himself. He was a lawyer, for goodness sakes. I said, why do you have to go back to the office on Sunday? To which he'd say, I've got to keep the wolf away from the door. My dad always spoke in metaphors. I never knew what he was talking about. I've got to get the monkey off my back. My ship's going to come in. I've got to keep the wolf away from the door. What is he talking about? <laughs> he always talked in metaphors. I kind of do that too, by the way. Anyway, this is, he never came to a single baseball game, never came to a single volleyball game. But you know, in his defense, neither, neither did the other fathers. They just weren't around. That's not what they did. But something happened when I was 12 years old. And I'll tell you this. This is my fondest childhood memory by far. Because when I was 12 years old, it was Christmas Day, my dad gave us this card, and in the card it was a coupon, as it were, for a ski trip with dad. And he gave it to me and my older brother and my next youngest brother, just the three of us. And on Boxing Day, we jumped in his 1964 Buick Wildcat, and off we went. And we spent a week together. <laughs> uh, you like wildcats or ski trips? The car. The car. He likes the car. He's clapping for the car. Yeah. Let's, let's play spot the guy. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, we got in his car and off we went. And he took us through, of all places, we went to Wisconsin and Michigan. And we went to all these little ski areas. But at 12 years old, they looked like majestic mountains. And it was just us and our dad for a whole week driving from place to place and skiing little areas and having dinner together and talking about it and driving again to the next location. Just us guys and dad. And you know what? We talked about that trip for years and years 
and years. We carried that memory because it was the most significant moment we had. When my dad used to come on holidays with us, this is the truth, he'd say, I'm going to take the week off, come to the lake with you guys. He would come by Tuesday, he was gone. He went back to the office. He always got called back to the office. So we had this treasured moment that we had together and we talked about it for years. And you know, I'll tell you something. 25 years later, we returned the favor and me and my two brothers took my dad on a ski trip for a week. And we, we replayed the, the, the moment from years gone by. And here's, here's the point I'm trying to make in all this, especially those of you that are raising kids and have them in your home still. You only have one go around on this. This is it. This is your one go. And you know what's going to happen? Those kids are going to grow up so fast, it's a blink of an eye and then it's gone. And they're in diapers and then they're walking and then they're in school and then they're, and then they're, they're rebellious teenagers and then they're married and they're gone. Boom, 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 boom. It goes like that so fast and you look back at it and you think, where'd that time go? And I've told you this before, I go to our family room where Kathy's put up all these pictures of days gone by and ski trips and at the lake and swimming and whatever. And I look at those pictures and I think those kids were so darn cute. Now look at them. And, but, but that's not the thing I lament. The thing I lament is that it went so by, by so fast and sometimes I can barely remember it. And I think to myself, if I had it to do it over again, and I was a pretty good parent, not as good as Kathy, I was a pretty good parent, but if I had it all to do over again, I would have spent twice as much time with my kids because you only do it once and it's more important than anything else you'll do in this world, right? That's when you clap. <laughs> or we can clap about the car, that's good too. Uh, and, you know, it's like this woman, she had four kids, all of them grew up became criminals and they all went to jail at the same time. And this reporter says to her, ma'am, if you had it to do all over again, would you still have kids? She said, sure, just different ones. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is this, it's commitment, it's putting in the time. The second thing is communication. And, you know, communication in the circus is, is really key. I don't know if you've ever seen them do the high trapeze blindfolded. I mean, look, look at this picture. If you look carefully, both those guys are wearing blindfolds. Do you think they swing off that thing and just say, let's give it a go and hope it works out? No, they have verbal cues so that they connect at the right time. And they only have a millisecond to do it. And so communication is really the key. And, you know, everything rises and falls in a family on relationship. And relationship rises and falls on your ability to communicate. So one of my favorite speakers is actually not a preacher. He's actually a social scientist. His name is Joseph Granny. And Joseph Granny, some of our leaders will know because I've run his, his videotapes. This is one of his lines, which will make sense today. Uh, the truth is you offend more people by what you don't say than what you do. And he's written a book called Crucial Conversations. And, uh, and here it is. It's, it's tools for talking when stakes are high. And he, we'll get into what these crucial conversations are. But let me tell you what his big idea is. I'll give you the thesis. And he says this, that you can measure the strength of a relationship by the lag time between when a problem appears and you start talking about it. And the longer it takes for you to start talking about a problem once it appears, the poorer and the weaker your relationship is. And what happens if you don't talk about something, if you don't talk out something, you will act out something. And you know what? People are still concerned. They're still wounded. They're still dealing with stuff. So they will act it out if you don't talk it out. So they'll slam doors. They'll leave the room. They'll sleep on the couch. And the list goes on and on. And so the, the, the secret to this 
is that you have to be willing to have those crucial conversations earlier. And the stronger your relationship is, the earlier you will have them. And it's crucial conversations, the, the ones you don't want to have, that takes you from where you are now to the next level of a relationship. And here's one of the points he makes that I found really interesting. He said that people sometimes think that they have to make a choice between telling the truth and keeping a friend. And he says, that is not true. And he uses the research that his 10-year-old son did. His 10-year-old son is becoming a social scientist. And let me tell you the story. I've seen the video because it's kind of funny. So his 10-year-old son decides he's going to do an experiment with his class at school. And he makes two batches of brownies. And the one batch of brownies, he puts in the regular recipe of sugar and chocolate and all of that, makes those brownies. But in the second batch, he substitutes the two cups of sugar for two cups of salt. And so then his teacher agreed to this, and he set up a taste testing station at school. He had a table. He had the two trays of brownies. He had what he labeled ordinary brownies. And on the other side, Scott's extra special brownies. And he told everybody he made those brownies. And and this is my favorite part of the story. He paid each one of them a dollar to do the taste test. Well, they're all willing to do that, brownies and a dollar. So he gives them a dollar, and they take the first brownie, the ordinary brownie, and they take a bite, and they're enjoying it. And then they take a bite of of the salted brownie, the special brownies, and every single one of them either gagged or spit it out. It was quite hilarious. And then this is where it happened. He said, which one of the brownies did you like the best? And every single one of those kids pointed to Scott's salted brownies. What did they do? They lied to keep a friend. And see, this is what we do in life. We think that we can't tell the truth. And, you know, there's times where it's probably a good idea not to be fully honest on something. But what we're talking about here is crucial conversations. We're not talking about what you're going to have for breakfast or whether the brownies are good or bad or what you're going to watch on television. Crucial conversations are this. Let me throw it out. This is as defined by Joseph Grenny. They're when you have an opposing opinion and strong emotions on a high-stakes situation. Those are crucial conversations. And we all have those in life. And there are things that we have to address. And if we don't address, we're not going to take the relationship to the next level. And we're certainly not going to resolve a conflict. So I want to give you a verse on this. Because the scripture actually is pretty clear on this. And here it is. It's from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And a lot of people don't understand that. It's not about stabbing your friend in the back of the neck with a knife. That's not the kind of wounds it's talking about. It's talking about honesty. And so he says, first of all, or secondly, he says, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Who remembers how Judas betrayed Jesus? He betrayed him with a kiss. Judas had something going on. Something was bugging Judas. We're not sure what it was, but something was bugging him. And he wasn't prepared to deal with it, and so he didn't deal with it. And instead what he did was he betrayed him with a kiss. And yet what the scripture tells us is that the wounds of a friend are faithful when we are willing to speak the truth in love to someone that we care about. Those are faithful wounds. So I want to go back to David a moment. I said I was going to pick on David. I'm going to continue to pick on David. We all know that he committed adultery with Bathsheba, one of his most egregious moments in his life that became absolute downright treachery. 
And so what happened, you remember the story, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he got her pregnant, and then he conspired to cover that up, and then he had Uriah, her husband, sent to the front, and he was killed in battle, and then he took Bathsheba, and she became his wife, and they had this child. The narrative of that story took nine months. If you do the math on that, it's not very hard to figure out. Here's my question for you. How many people around David knew what had happened? How many people? You know what the answer is? All of them. Everybody knew this. I mean, he sent for the woman. He sent his, his servants to go get her. They went and got the woman and brought her back. They would have escorted her back home in the morning. Uh, they, they were around while he was conspiring to make this happen. They heard him. His, his captains heard it when they sent Uriah to the front. And they all saw that he took the woman that husband had just died and been, been killed in battle and married her. Everybody saw this coming. Everybody saw it happening in front of their eyes. But here's my question. Who spoke up? Out of all those people, everybody knew about it, and nobody spoke up. Now, I understand he was the king, and, and there was a great caution there. And finally, one and only one person spoke up, and his name was Nathan. And Nathan was the prophet, and Nathan was very cautious about it. And so what Nathan did was he came and he told him a parable. And he said, so David, so there's this, this thing that happened. There was this man, he had many sheep, he was very wealthy, and he had visitors coming, and he needed to make them a meal. And so he went to a very poor man that only owned one lamb, and he took that lamb and slaughtered that lamb and fed his people. And David said, that man deserves to die. Who is that man? And Nathan said, you are that man. See, Nathan was willing to speak the truth. He was very careful how he did it. But he had to speak the truth in love to bring David to that place where he was confronted in his sin. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, so he repented and he dealt with it. And, and I'm not going to get into the rest of the story. But it was what had to happen. If that had, had not happened, if Nathan had not confronted David, his behavior would have become even more treacherous. The path would have carried on. And see, this is what happens in our families. We fail to address the crucial moments in our families and with our friends. And because of that, it ends up escalating. So I'm going to take two minutes here really quickly. So pay attention, write this down, it might be helpful. I'm going to give you the keys, the secrets. I'm going to give you a takeaway as to how to have crucial conversations. So number one, four points. Number one, recognize when a conversation has gone crucial. You know what? With your teenage daughter, that takes about one second, right? <laughs> or sometimes with your spouse. I mean, these things can happen in an absolute instant. They can go by so quickly. And what you need to do is you need to be able to recognize that. And as soon as you realize, whoa, I'm in a crucial conversation, the thing is to step back. You've got to deal with it. So the second step is this, is you have got to de-escalate it before it reaches DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1, by the way, is defense readiness condition, and DEFCON 1 is the worst. That's the outbreak of nuclear war, all right? And so you've got to de-escalate it. Now, here's the key. Pay attention. The way you de-escalate a conversation is this. You, use, you lead with questions and observations rather than conclusions and accusations. There's a big difference. Let me give you an example. Little Johnny's doing poorly at school. He's not showing up for classes. He's late all the time. He's failing. And so here's how you do it. You go to him and say, Johnny, why are you so lazy and stupid? 
right? No, wrong. That's, that's making uh, conclusions. That's making accusations. It's hurtful. You're not going to get anywhere leading like that. So what would be the key? You ask questions and you make observations. So here's a better approach. You go say, Johnny, I'm wondering if we can have a conversation about something. We've, we've noticed you're having trouble getting up in the morning. We notice that you're, you're, you're getting to school late and uh, sometimes you're missing classes altogether. And we've heard the report from the school that you may not pass the year. And so here's what we need to know. Is there something going on in your life that we need to know about? Is there something we can do to help you in this? You see the big difference in that? You didn't lead with, why are you so lazy and stupid? You wanted to, but you didn't because you have to de-escalate it. And what you do is you come humbly, you come lovingly, you speak the truth in love. And that brings us to the last one, which is super important. You look for the common purpose. See, you and little Johnny have the same common purpose. You actually both want him to go to school and graduate. You actually, he wants that too, deep down in his heart. And you want him to get there. And so you actually have a common end, a common conclusion to this story that you need to get to. So that's the, 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 the crash course. I hope you, you wrote that down, at least thought about that. Because I think we probably all have crucial conversations that we need to have in our family and in our relationships. So let me land this message here with one story. I'm going to go back to Joseph Granny because he gives, he gives this personal example. It's probably one of his best personal stories. And it's not about the family, but everything in this story could directly relate to a family. So here's the story. He was a Boy Scout leader, and uh, there was another Boy Scout leader named Patrick. They'd become great friends. They'd gone on camping trips together with the boys, and they'd become really tight and spent a lot of time together. And then all of a sudden, Patrick disappeared, and he hadn't seen Patrick for 10 years. And one night, there's a knock on his door, and he goes to the door, and it's Patrick. He said, Patrick, I haven't seen you for years. And Patrick says, I know, I've been in a lot of trouble. He said, I got into drugs, and then I started committing crimes, and I ended up spending time in jail. And he says, I really, really want to change, and I really want to get my life back on track. And I thought about it, and I thought, out of all the people I know in this world, Who do I know that I could really trust and I could go to? And the only name I could think of was yours. And let me just make a little sidebar here. Do you know that nine times out of ten, when people hit bottom and they have to go and find someone to help them, that no matter how bad their family was, their family is the place they'll turn to? Why? Because that's the place of unconditional love. That's the place that will bear up and hold up to almost any grief this world has to offer. And so they'll often come back to us because they know in our hearts that we love him, no matter what we've been through together. So anyway, he says, will you help me? He says, yes. He helps him get him his life back on track. He needed to buy a truck for work. So he co-signed the loan for him to buy a truck. And it went pretty well for a few months. He was making payments and everything was going well. And then all of a sudden, he goes off the rails, disappears again. He doesn't see him. So he thinks to himself, well, who knows where I'll ever see Patrick again. Anyway, a few weeks later, something happens. And there's a break-in in his house. And somebody broken into their house while they were out of town and stole some things. He was feeling very violated by this. And so he told his family he was going to install a security system, put up security cameras. And uh, they really you know, weren't happy about this like anybody wouldn't be. So they put up security cameras, and not a few weeks went by, and they were broken in again. And they went and looked at the security camera footage, and you guessed it, who broke into his house but Patrick. And he went in through the basement window and he took some valuables and he went out the front door and there they had him uh, dead to rights on the video camera. 
He wasn't going to do anything about it because he didn't know where Patrick was. Didn't have his phone number, didn't know his address, didn't know where he lived. And uh, he felt super disappointed that he'd been betrayed by his friend, but, but he left him. Then about a couple months later, he's driving down the street. Actually, it wasn't even near his home. And he sees Patrick walking down the sidewalk. And he stops and he rolls down his window and he says, Patrick! Patrick all tenses up. You can see he's ready to run. He says, no, Patrick, it's good. I just, I just want to talk. Hop, hop into the car. So Patrick gets into the car and sits with him and he says, why don't you come home? I'll make you lunch. So he drives him home, takes him to his house and they have lunch together. And he says, oh, I have something I want to show you. And he takes him down into the basement and he gets the TV ready and the recorder to, to play the videotape. You know where this is going. And then he turns to Patrick and he says this, Patrick, before I show you this, you know that I love you, right? And Patrick said, I really do know that. He said, good, I needed to make sure we were clear on that. And then he pushed play, and there was Patrick breaking into their house, and they watched this video together. And Patrick just broke down, and he sobbed, and he sobbed, and he sobbed. And Then he looked up at Joseph. He said, so, so what are you going to do? He says, I'm not going to do anything. The police already have the videotape. They've already seen this footage, and it's up to you what you do. And he, then he sobbed some more, and he said, I need to go to jail. I need to make this right. I need to turn myself in. And so that's what he did. And you know, I I want to point out this, that that this could be a, a family situation, what I just told you where somebody has betrayed our trust and we need to have that, that, that crucial conversation, but we're only going to get there one way, and that's by speaking the truth in love. And please don't miss the love part because at the end of the day, there's not quite anything like family. Family is the most important thing that God has ever given us, and he has said in his word that before the end comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Let's stand together. All right, I want to ask you all to uh, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Um, We're going to do two things, so don't run away. And we'll have some monkey food for you at the end. We have bananas. So we're really doing a zoo theme here, a circus theme. But I needed to do two things. Number one is this. I want to have a crucial conversation with some of you that have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. You've never done that. And uh, I don't know you, but I'll tell you something. I love you enough that I want to tell you about Jesus because I don't want anyone to ever go to a fate worse than death. And the only way we can get past that is by inviting Christ into our life. He died on the cross for your sin. And if you're here today and you've never made that commitment to be a follower of Jesus, or maybe you've done it in the past and you've slipped away, I want to give you an opportunity for you to come back. So nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. I will not single you out. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. You're not going to have to say anything publicly. This is between you and me and Jesus. And if today you would like to make that decision to be part of the family of God, I want you to slip up your hand so I can see it. Just be real bold. Thank you, sir. Just be real bold and let me see your hand. And once I've seen your hand, you can put it down again. Anybody else want to join these folks? Just take a moment. Let me see your hand. Maybe you've slipped away. You knew him in the past. Please come back. The father is calling you back like the prodigal son. All right. Okay. So I said I wasn't going to single anybody out, so we're all going to pray together. You ready for this? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your love. Thank you for your 
that you cared about me so much, you loved me so much, that you died on the cross for my sin. You rose again on the third day, and you forever live to be my Lord. Today I welcome you into my life as I get welcomed into your family. And I thank you that I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give Jesus a quick shout here. Second thing, every head bowed, every eye closed. I know, please please every eye closed. I know that while I was talking and telling those stories, there's some of you in this room that have a crucial conversation, high stakes, opposing opinions, high emotions. You have a crucial conversation that you need to have that you haven't had with a family member or a friend or some relationship. And God wants to give you the strength and the wisdom to be able to have that conversation. But if that's you, I want to pray for you. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to ask you to say anything, but I do want you to raise your hand. If that's you, raise your hand. There's hands popping up all over, dozens of hands all over the room. Don't, don't miss out on this. You have a crucial conversation you need to have. God wants to help you with that. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to pray for everybody who raised their hand and those that didn't but should have. And Father, I want to ask that you would give us the moment in time, the right time to have this conversation, that you would set it up sovereignly and supernaturally. I want to pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom and the grace and the wherewithal to be able to have this conversation in truth, but in abundant love, overwhelmingly love. And Father, I want to thank you in the name of Jesus that you have a common purpose that we have with this other human being and that it is your desire even greater than ours to get to the other side, that this relationship could go to a whole new level. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give Jesus a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.